This is the Learning to Lead Podcast, episode number 79. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 79 of the Learning to Lead Podcast. This episode is coming to you from our breakfast series in which we bring in high-level leaders to share their best leadership content with uh, our breakfast attendees. Our recent speaker this past Saturday was Dean Owry, who is the CFO of UPMC Enterprises and ISD. And he did a phenomenal job speaking at our breakfast, and we broke his talk into two different episodes um, for the podcast. And in this episode, episode number 79, you'll get to listen to the question and answer session that we had with Dean. In episode number 78, we published Dean's actual talk. And so if you'd like to listen to his talk and haven't got a chance to, you can listen to that uh, if you're on your podcast at episode 78, or you can go online at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 78, and you can check that out. If you're in Pittsburgh and interested in attending a future event at Learning to Lead, we'd love to have you at a breakfast, and you can find that on our website at l3leadership.org forward slash event, and you'll see all the upcoming breakfasts right there. Before we jump into the Q&A, just a, a few things I want to make mention of. One is I want to thank our sponsor, Bistro to Go, which is the restaurant on the north side of Pittsburgh that hosts our breakfast. They're an incredible restaurant with a mission. Uh, they have excellent food and fantastic corporate catering. And if you're in Pittsburgh and looking for a great catering company, we really encourage you to check them out. Um, they're located on East Ohio Street on the north side of Pittsburgh. If you want to check them out on the web, you can go to their website at bistroandcompany.com. As always, I want to encourage you, if this podcast adds value to your life, we would love it and appreciate it if you could subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, whatever you're using to listen to this episode. And if you could leave a rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher, um, that would be great. It really helps us climb the ranks in uh, podcast rankings uh, as well as grow our audience organically. So if you wouldn't mind taking a few minutes to do that, it takes two to three minutes. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. And lastly, if you want to stay in touch with everything we're doing here at L3 Leadership, you can visit us, our website at l3leadership.org, and we encourage you to sign up for our email list there um, to stay up to date with all the upcoming events, resources, podcasts, etc. So that being said, that's all I have for the announcements. Let's jump right into the Q&A with Dean, and I'll be back at the end of the episode with a few things. Enjoy. My name is Blake. Uh, what do you look for in a mentor? How do you select one? Is it just something they have that you want, or like what? What, it, what are the qualities that draw you to choosing? That's a that's a great question. Um, I've been in two big companies thus far in my career, Ernst and Young, and now UPMC. And we talk a lot about the power of mentorship, and we talk about the assigned mentors. Do you let that be a kind of an organic development? Um, my own personal philosophy is is I'm I'm an advocate of organic. Mentorship. You just, you know, you can't impose somebody on you. So, so to answer your question, what do you look for? I, I think it, it you, you got to look for some person who, you know, authentically cares about you. Um, you know, the, 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 a mentor needs to have compassion for the situation that you're in that requires you to seek the advice of somebody. Um, they need to have an interest. Um, you as the individual need to have a pleasing personality. Um, it's hard to ask somebody to give you advice if you're not very genuine or kind or um, not easy to deal with. Um, that takes energy from that person who you're asking to give them, you know, give you your, you know, your, a perspective. Um, 
It's a tough question, and you can see I'm not coming up with any particular attributes. You, you'll, you know when you find one. I, I just, um, as I look back on the career and I said find a couple mentors or find a mentor or two, I mean, I can name some of them. They came to me, um, and, and, and the first mentor I had was a guy by the name of Doug Stuver. And, and Doug became a mentor really because I spent time working on an engagement with him. So in the act of working together daily for four weeks, eight weeks, we just got to know each other. And in the, in the practice of knowing one another, um, you know, I got to know his character. He got to know mine. He got to know about my family, my interests. I got to know about his. And so it just led to a, a sense of comfort that um, when I had a problem 18 months into my career, Doug was the person who was with me um, that was the sage wisdom I referred to. Um, later on in my career, um, it became, I had a lot of women mentors. That seems odd to say as a guy. I'm proud of that. I had um, the privilege of working for women partners at Ernst & Young, and it was hugely beneficial. When I referred to that pink in me, it's because I actually do have some pink characteristics. You know, not all blue characteristics, even though I'm a man. <laughs> but I learned a lot of things about how women approach situations and the perspective that they mean. So. I had two or three women mentors in my career that, that mostly became mentors because, again, I found myself working with them. I got to know them. They got to know me. And, and I thought their perspective mattered. Um, you'll know when you have a mentor. Um, you, you, you will. It could be your husband, your, your wife, your brother, your sister, co-worker. But you'll know. And, and I think at the root, you have to be one who is willing to reveal your concern, your vulnerability, and then fully embrace the perspective that that person's been asked to give. And it may not be the kind of feedback that you think you're going to get. It might be feedback that really knocks you down. And you have to be prepared for that. But in, in the time, in time, you'll, you'll come to realize that is truly a gift of mentorship. So, sorry I can't give you the top five things. So, along those lines, so we were talking before, before you got up and spoke, you said Paul, we were talking about Paul, you said, just how, we were talking about you personally mentoring people when you said, well, Paul's a great mentee. I mean, it, that makes a difference. What, what do you look for? What have you found in young leaders that makes them good mentees or teachable versus the ones who maybe don't? He'll go along with the journey. Well, Paul is a, I, I don't call him a mentee. I, I'd actually call him a colleague, and he is a colleague. He is a professional in every sense of the word. Um, I think what makes a person respond to mentorship is, is the willingness to, to listen. Um, you have to make a leap of faith that just about every vulnerability you're going to face in your life isn't the first vulnerability in mankind. Somebody has dealt with it. And, and what you want to try to do is learn from those who've dealt with that same vulnerability. I know it's acutely real because it's you involved with that vulnerability, but, but what makes a colleague respond to mentorship is to really listen and apply what is being taught. And you can disagree with it. And, and it's okay to disagree with that perspective. It's just a perspective. But I think um, you have to be willing to listen, apply, um, 
go back, share what you've experienced following the, 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 the advice. Um, but it, it's difficult to be told something that, that isn't what you think in your own mind. Um, when I was a partner at Ernst & Young, I mean, I, I am authentically enthusiastic about people. And at e &Y, I was in our Pittsburgh office, they denoted me the people partner. So anything related to people, I was the partner that sponsored and instigated some of those things. And, and I took great pride in that because it was natural for me. And I had a partner come into my office after a partner meeting, shut the door, and tell me how offended he was with some of what I was saying. He just felt it was fake, felt it was counter to our objectives around quality work and we can't be always a people first environment and, and, and it was really hard feedback because I was speaking from my heart when I was interacting with my partners about some of the things we were trying to do to inspire and bring the best out of our people. And to have a partner come back, shut my door, and tell me he disagreed was really difficult. But I had to listen. That was a point of view. So it didn't matter how I thought I was conveying my point of view. It was how others were receiving it. And I, I've, I've thought about that a lot. But so Doug, to your question, I think you have to be willing to listen. And, and I'm saying listen and then, and then go on a different course, but, but listen and react. Is that telling you something? Is there a mid-course correction? Is there something else that you can learn from, from that feedback? And, and the willingness to do that, even if it doesn't fit right, even if it goes down sideways, is sometimes um, the most important thing. I'm still as enthusiastic about people, but I do so with a degree of probably realism that I didn't have then. Oh, you both were at the same time. Hi, thank you so much for being here today. I'm Caitlin, and I'm an online health and fitness coach. And my question for you was, you said that after you left uh, Ernst & Young, you didn't have a job, mm -hmm. and a job started with Correct. I was just curious what you feel in your life has helped given you the signpost to know what that next step is, and what led you to UPMC, what, what helped do you know that that was the right path to be on, or... That, that instance or any other instance? Yeah. Great question. Uh, a little more of the backstory. Um, when I was with Ernst Young, partners had to rotate on accounts, particularly public company accounts. And although UPMC is not technically an SEC registrant, Ernst Young viewed them as a public company. And I was asked, and we knew we were going to have to rotate partners, and so I was asked early on that, hey, you're going to likely have to move. And that's common for partners in a big accounting firm to move from area to area, region to region. But my wife didn't want to move. <laughs> she was my, you know, I had a clear purpose. And so I, 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 I said no early on to that request. Um, I had a couple ice spots in my career. Great client experiences, couple client experiences not so great. And, um, and the prospect of ultimately having to rotate and not being able to replace a client the size of UPMC locally, I mean, the prospects of relocating were going to, I mean, they were real. Um, either that or the firm was going to terminate me because you, know, you can't pay a partner 
and not have any business. <laughs> Those economics don't work. Um, but, but to answer your question, I'm going to take you back probably 12 or 18 months. And, and I know all of you in here, I think, um, you do reflect. That's why you're here. I reflected a lot. I did. I leaned on my faith a lot. And I prayed for three signs. And I, it's true as I'm standing here, I got three signs. I got three signs over the course of that period of time I was really thinking about this. And I'll tell you, the funniest third sign, if you don't believe God has a sense of humor, he has a sense of humor. <laughs> the third sign was I was, we had a client, I won't reveal the names, we had a client, and they were going to be acquired by a large venture firm out of New York. And the local client wanted to retain us. And we were thrilled about that. Except that the partner, the principal of this venture firm was a guy by the name of Sam Waxel. Now if you don't know the name Sam Waxel, just Google it sometime and you'll get a whole bunch of hits. Because he was the person that put Martha Stewart in jail because of insider trading. And I thought, there is no way in the world Ernst & Young is going to let me take on a client where a convicted felon who's been barred from the SEC etc. is the investor. I thought there's no way, there's my third sign. <laughs> that was in July of 2010 and I tendered my resignation September 30th. That was my third sign. So I made that decision because I knew it was the right thing. I was at a point where I wasn't, the, the energy exchange wasn't fair anymore. I was actually taking more than what I was giving and that was a some might say, well, that's terrific. No, it's not. It was awful. It was awful. And I leaned on my faith. I leaned on my wife. I leaned on my mentors. And I had some great ones. And I made the decision to leave. And I did not have a job lined up. Now, I had confidence that I had portable skills. I had confidence I could do something. And I actually thought I would go teach or do something like that. And... That period of transition between September 30th and January 31, I got a phone call. And as irony plays out, here's how it unfolded. It was the first day back after the holiday weekend, or the holiday um, time, January 3rd or so. And the CFO at UPMC called me, except he called my cell phone, and I didn't have my cell phone because I got a new one for Christmas. And so our technology people had it all day, configuring it and doing all those things. So he called me at like 5 after 8 in the morning, and I didn't get the phone message until like 5 o'clock that afternoon. And his message was simply, hey, don't do anything, don't sign anything, call me. Well, I was still a partner, and so I couldn't have conversations with a client. So I at least called him and said, hey, I got your message. I'm interested. But remember, I'm a partner through January 31. I can't be talking to you about employment opportunities. So I didn't. I left on January 31st. I started on February 14th. <laughs> Kevin's in the audience. Kevin was my senior manager and one of my dear colleagues. And um, he's one of the persons I wrote the letter to. And he can probably attest that they knew nothing about it. In fact. They went to work at the UPMC building and saw my name on an office and thought, what's all that about? I didn't tell a soul other than my wife. And during that 90-day period, she was terrified. She hadn't worked in 20 years. 
Daughter at home, 16 years old, son in 12, all the expensive years still ahead of me. <laughs> You're not going to work? <laughs> but it was a lot of reflection and, 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 again, benefits of sanctuary of my car. I spent time thinking and I'm thrilled with the outcome. And I'm still in early stages of my second half. Think about that question, Dara. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the comment. Um, I thought about baseball. I thought about my baseball team. Um, I've been coaching baseball. Now, I do have a son who's in the program. Now, he's a junior. But I've been coaching high school baseball long before he was involved. So for those that maybe are single or, you know, you know have different, you know, life communities, whatever you want to, whatever you want to catalog it, it, it ties back to that passion that you have. And for me, coaching high school baseball has been a passion. And it's taken me away from my family. A lot of time away from my family. Important time. But I've been embraced and participated fully. Um, and I've had an impact on those kids. Um, they laughed at me first because I used to put a note card in my back pocket. I, I coached third base when I first started. I was a junior varsity head coach. And head coach always coached third base because you give signs and all that stuff. But I used to put a note card in my back pocket. And the reason is because, remember I said I was a noticer? You'd be, you'd be amazed at what you can notice in the course of a seven-inning baseball game. I'm, I'm not kidding you if you actually want to study the game. I don't mean... I don't mean, you know, how many errors did you make and who got a hit. I mean just philosophies of life. So I do that, and I know that, that my involvement there has had an impact on the players that have, you know, played in our program, that I've had the experience of being around. Um, if you don't have a husband, you don't have a wife, um, find something you're passionate about and get involved with it. That's how I got involved with high school baseball. I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it in spite of being in the school gymnasium from January through March from 7.30 till 10 o'clock at night after working all day. I mean, I didn't see my kids for much of that time. But my wife understood it. She knew that was a passion. She knew I gave every ounce of effort to it. And we've had outcomes since that have validated it was the right thing to do. But I tell you that if you don't have a family or you're still you know, working to that, or if that's not in your future, just associate with your with the passions you have and find a way to get involved. Um, it doesn't have to be family is your clear purpose. Um, I'm going to pick on Paul because Paul inspired me two or three years ago when he started talking about light of life. And it was his inspiration that has, you know, caused me to undertake some activities in my own life. But, you know, this is a guy who, you know, he and his wife don't have children yet. Maybe they won't have children. I don't know what their career, you know, their, their family plans are. But that was a passion, and 
And so I'm proud to say Paul participates in that passion. So I just encourage you to associate with the things that you enjoy and do it all in. Uh, my name is Bill in uh, financial services. You talked about that you read a lot. Um, you could recommend a few books. What would they be? Well, I, I, I am a John Wooden fan, i got to tell you. He's got timeless treasures. Um, John Wooden was a legendary basketball coach at UCLA, if you don't know him. I don't know that I have any particular books I re recommend. I think what, you know, I, I love Barnes & Noble online because it always says readers like you like to read this. <laughs> you know, and then they got me. I, instead of checking out one book, I got three. And then my wife's like, what are we going to do with all these books? Um, I like John Maxwell. Um, again, uh, I like, um, his name is Andy Andrews. He's, I think, I think that's the author of The Noticer. Um, I, I, I like books that make me think, make me think about the application of what I'm reading in my own life, but um, I don't know that I have a favorite author. I, I guess if you, if, if I reveal to you how I do my online shopping at Barnes & Noble, it's probably under like the motivational section in the left column, and then I start buying from there. Um, I, I, I do read a little bit about coaching philosophies from, from coaches, athletic coaches. It's not all I read, but... Um, Is there a book you're currently reading right now? I am actually reading a book by Tim Elmore. Uh, Tim Elmore is a person that leads a large organization that's all about trying to lead young, young people and he does it mostly in the education setting. I'm, I'm reading about Generation IY because I have a lot of Generation IY in my presence and, um, and so I'm really trying to learn about how you know, the younger generation has grown up and how do we engage the young generation in, in being you know, meaningful contributors to the businesses that we're you know, handing to them. So that's a book I have underway right now. Um, I do like Tim Elmore. He has a daily um, blog he sends out. I usually find something that's interesting in that, but it, it varies and there's probably no there's not much scheming to my, my library, <laughs> except it's not big enough, so there's books lying on the floor. Hi, Meredith, uh, health coaching consultant. And it uh, seems a common thread with successful leaders that they have daily habits that set them up for success. So do you have a morning routine or anything you do every day that sets you up for success in your life? I tell you, it wouldn't work for everybody, but I love my drive-in, i got to tell you. I do. And it doesn't work for everybody. When, I, when people say, where do you live? I say Newcastle. And usually I get, wow. I can't tell you how many times I've got, wow. <laughs> and I understand it. I mean, I understand. I admire Paul. He lives on the north side here. He can walk to work. I, I mean, I admire that. You know, every once in a while it would be nice to walk to work. But, but for, my, for me, my routine is, um, is that, that quiet time in a car. Because literally from the time I pull out of my driveway, my garage, I have... Well, there's now two red lights, but I, I only had one red light between my house and downtown Pittsburgh. One red light. So I would spend probably the thir first 30 minutes in really sanctuary. And that was really important because I would plan my day. And by the time I got to Cranberry or Wexford, now, you know, I'm starting to hit traffic. And of course, now, now i got to be alert. And it's no longer about me. It's a little bit more about the, the rest of the world that's, you know, that I'm starting to interact with. But that was an important time to me. So I use my time 
that's really how I plan my day is I think about that time. What do I want to get done? And I think if you ask folks around me, they'd come in and tell you I typically get things done right away. And I remember when email was first introduced. I know that sounds shocking, but it didn't used to exist. I remember when I used to get like two emails a day. And when you got one, it was exciting. <laughs> Except it was usually because, you know, they were, the administrator was telling you something. It was not anything that you needed to, to read. But when I come in the office in the morning, I try to tell people, look, the first thing I try not to do is turn my email on. Because really what it does is it distracts you from the things you've probably thought you need to get after right away. And so I use that as a ritual every day. I use my drive time to think, I've got to get these couple of things done. They're, they're important. And I'm going I'm to try my best not to get distracted by whatever emails occurred from the last time I checked. Um, so for me, it's that drive time. Similar to on the way home, I, I decompress. So again, the first 15, 20 minutes, you're a little stressful because there's traffic. But once I get up to like Evans City, I mean, again, it's, it's uh, me and the highway. So, and some people say, do you have serious radio? I don't even have it turned on. I just, I go silent. Me and me. And me. That's what I do. Boring, I know. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Armando. I'm uh, Director of Business Development for uh, LFG. And uh, the qu- uh, Bob Buford, the, the book. Contract. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, What's your favorite? I just talked about one last week. I'm all three of them. Um, what's your favorite part about that book? Is there one, a couple of takeaways from that book that? Uh I, you know, it, I don't know that I have. It, first of all, it's been it's been five years since I read it. Um, just the whole concept of halftime. Um, when we when you think about it in that context, I mean, you know, you're you're young. I was thirty. I was 43 when I left Ernst & Young. So I, I was 20, 21, 23 years into a profession. But I, I was truly in this stage of a game. I would have been at halftime. I just think I like the analogy more than anything. That, that the concept of halftime, and I'm a pit football fan. Anybody a pit football fan? Ah, oh, thank God, there's a few of you. Let me tell you what Pat Narduzzi's greatest strength is, is they make halftime adjustments. They do. And that's what I guess I learned from that book, is that we are really in a career, much like a game. If you break it down into quarters or half times, you, you have the ability to step back and say, do I want to make any adjustments? When I come out for the third quarter, would I do things differently having now experienced the first and second quarter? And that resonated with me. Because remember when I found that book, I was truly thinking about what am I going to do outside of Ernst & Young? What's my second halftime look like? So I guess I like that. And I think, you know, to, again, to close the Pat Narduzzi pit, I, I do think he is terrific at making halftime adjustments. They are a different team in the second half because they've observed what worked and what didn't work in the first half. That is what you can do in your personal life, your career, in just about everything if you think about it. So I hope that helps. Um, I'm sorry, there's some noise back there. In times of trials, you, you're kind of waiting for the signs. You, you, you're watching, you're asking. Just maybe elaborate a little bit what kind of signs. And have you ever had a situation where you don't get signs? Oh, sure. 
Yeah, I, I would say you can't wait for signs and everything. Um, I'm not suggesting that. Now, 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 the choice I was trying to make then really did, did that was a, that was, I was a, that was a, that was a difficult time in my life. And my, my, my wife and I, you know, we leaned on each other a lot. She really had to make, you know, leap of faith with me. I was okay. Um, so the signs, I, I, you know, I had three signs. I told you about the last one, which it's kind of funny, but. The other two early on, and I'm going to answer your more direct question. Um, I had a client that really enjoyed serving and broke my heart when they said, we're going to go out and competitively bid this relationship. And we didn't win it. Um, we weren't cheaper than the person, you know, the firm that won it. And it crushed me because, you know, here I am trying to keep my portfolio because I knew I was going to rotate off of a big one. And so every time I lost a client, it was, you know, it was kind of hurtful. But I had a sign, that was one. And then I had an opportunity to um, pursue a client for the firm in Susquehanna. It was, it was called Susquehanna Health System. It was in um, Williamsport, where the Little League World Series are, ironically, me, the baseball guy, right? And it was an opportunity to collaborate with our Philadelphia office. So here I was gonna source this engagement with a Philadelphia office, maybe create an opportunity to build a different network than one I had in Pittsburgh. Really excited about it went over there, we made a great presentation, really connected with the board, except that there was a firm from Missouri that was about a third our price. We didn't get the work. Sign number two, and then I told you sign number three was Sam Waxel. But you can't always wait for signs. I needed those signs because I was gonna undertake a very significant. But, but if you have a point of view, you feel like you've got a reasoned point of view, then just act on it. You know, when I came to UPMC, Paul will tell you, I was anything but a technologist. Um, so I have an older brother who's a CIO of that company I was referring to, and he, he thinks it's oxymoronic that what I do is finance for IT, because I'm not very good at IT. But I know about finance, and I know how the business of IT can run. But when you have a reason point of view, you have to act on it. That's when you don't need the signs. You don't need to step back and reflect. If you've come to a reasoned, rationalized point of view, then you need to share it. You need to ship your product. And I think so you have to just discriminate a little bit about what is it you need help with. Is it something monumental like I was contemplating with a career change? Or is it something where it is not so catastrophic, but you know something needs to get done and you just got to get it going? then you've got to just you know, have a point of view, a, re a reasoned point of view, and then you've got to act on it. You've got to bring energy to it. Um, yeah, I talked about the energy, energy exchange. One of the things that used to drive me nuts is um, when I worked with clients, I, I used to spend time trying to learn and research and apply my own thought to the issue at hand. And somebody said to me, man, you just need to put your hands up faster and go get the help. And, and, and there's, there's, there's some correctness in both approaches, but it, it goes back to energy. I mean, if you're gonna, if you wanna do something, you gotta go after it with energy. One more question. Oh, there are two hands up. I can't make this election, Doug. Last two questions. <laughs> Great. 
you give me some advice about speaking to a full room, a full audience of people with the coding piece? First, take some deep belly breaths. <laughs> I know that sounds funny. You have to take some deep belly breaths because what that will do is it'll force oxygen in your brain, which will fire off blood to all the areas of your body, and you'll be in a better state of mind and a better physical condition. So deep belly breaths is my first point of advice. I think you have to have confidence in, in the point of view that you have. Um, I'm going to answer your question by sharing a story. I'm on a school board today of that same school my father was on 30 years ago. And we're in the midst of trying to evaluate how do we deal with a 100-year-old facility. It's, it's served us well. It's just not ready for the next generation of public education. I had to speak in front of the teachers, whom I admire and respect. And it was, it was initially an uncomfortable setting because you know these are educated people. They have points of view. This is their factory, if you will. But I did my belly breaths. But, but, but I think if you have a point of view and it's not offensive in the delivery, it, it, it appears genuine, authentic, it's well thought, it's, it's not overbearing, and you can preserve civility, common sense can prevail. I'm going to give you all, another piece of advice is don't get distracted with malcontents. It's easy to get distracted with that person or persons who have a malcontented point of view. And you have to really avoid engaging in that area. And I will tell you from my own experiences, there's nothing that frustrates malcontented mindsets more than disengagement. When you don't engage in that, that frustrates a malcontent. And that's a way to bring the conversation back to center. But when you bring it back to center, you have to have reason and rationalization and compassion and authenticity in the points of view you want to you know, espouse. It's been my own experience that too often we, we tend to migrate to the malcontentedness and it takes us away from center. There was one more, I think it was here. Yeah, what advice do you have for um, like balancing your personal life? Like I think a lot of successful business people you know, are in the office a lot, but don't have a great family life. What advice do you have? Own it. Um, when I was starting out my career at Arthur Young, Arthur Young, I played softball. I, was, I played softball with my twin brother. It was great because it got us to relive our youth. Except I played in Meadville and Sandy Lake and Cochranton. You know, these are, these are farther than Newcastle. <laughs> But this was back in a day when we'd have all the technology that we have today, and so the, work, the ability to work mobile, you know, um, remotely, that didn't exist. But I owned it. I mean, that was important to me. And, but I owned my work responsibilities. I mean, I came to work ready to go, and I was engaged with my work. I did my work with the best effort, with quality, the best I could do, so that I could actually then participate in the other things in my life that were important. And I did that long before we talked about work-life balance. That genie wasn't out of the bottle. I just owned it. It was important to me, and I never let my work suffer. 
But I, I tell you, the common thread to your question is I owned it. When I started coaching high school baseball, I'm going to give you the last story. I was asked one time when I was with Ernst & Young, I was probably a senior manager. The coach I played for had just been named the head coach. He said, I'd love if you would join our staff. I said, hey, Mike, I can't do it. You know, I work at Ernst Young. I'm in Pittsburgh. Got some clients. And I'm around the area. I can't do it. I'm not in the school. Dismissed it. Of course, I lived in the area. So, you know, I'd see them. I'd bump into them in different community events. And I was visible. A couple years passed. I think by this time I was a partner. He said, I want to ask you again, would you be willing to join our staff? I'm like, oh, I'm like, I can't do it. I'm a partner. I got clients all over the place. I'm, you know, busy. A couple years later, he asked me again. And I thought, my last chance. And the irony of it is that he asked me about a week before I was going away on a partner meeting, a partner retreat. And ironically, the, one of the primary themes was about kind of this work-life balance and how do you achieve it and so forth. And I thought, boy, this is, this is speaking to me. So I went back and I told Mike, I said, Mike, I'll, I'll, I'll join your staff. Here are my conditions. I want no remuneration. I want nothing. Okay, I don't want any. I, I want to be a volunteer. I'm only going to do this for one year. And I only told a very select few people. I told the corporate controller at UPMC because I thought there was a risk. I would jeopardize my performance to that important client if I had to go leave at 2 o'clock because I was going to coach third base on a Tuesday afternoon. And I told Kevin, who was one of my senior managers, hey, I'm going to do this. I might not be available between 2 and 4 or 4 and 6 because I'm going to be on a baseball field. And I need you to know it's not because I'm disinterested in our work, but you know, I might have to get back on a tip topic at 7. or those. So I let some people know up front. But I owned it. That first season, I went back to Stacy and I said, did you notice anything? Nope, didn't notice anything. My responsiveness was okay. Yep, you were responsive. All those things I was obsessing about. I said to Kevin, anything that I dropped? Did things not get resolved? Did my absence create difficulty for the rest of the engagement team? And the answer was no. It gave me the peace of mind that I could do this. But remember, I owned it. I did not relinquish the important responsibilities at work. They were still important. I had to get those things done on time, on quality, and without interfering with anybody who was part of that effort. But it was on me. And I would just tell that that opportunity exists for you, regardless of where you're at. There is an employer, an employer on the face of this earth that's going to do it for you. They're just not. They will try to remove barriers for you to allow you to experience life, to have the kind of meaningful participation in things outside of work, but they're not going to do it for you. They're not. So the earliest you can own it while preserving the quality of the work you do, um, that'll be your guide, your glide, your glide path. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the question and answer session with Dean. We hope you enjoyed it. Again, for ways to connect with Dean and what he's doing, you can check out the show notes at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 79. And again, if you'd like to listen to Dean's actual talk, uh, you can listen to that at, on episode 78, and you can find that online at l3leadership.org forward slash episode 78.
If you enjoyed the podcast today, again, we'd really appreciate if you would subscribe and leave a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us grow our audience. And then lastly, we'd encourage you to sign up for our email list at l3leadership.org to stay up with everything, up to date with everything that we're doing. As always, I'd like to leave you with a quote. And I found this quote recently. I love it. Mark Batterson, who I quote often, said this. He said, someone else's dream is contingent on you pursuing your dream. I absolutely love that. And, you know, I know that's true of L3 Leadership. It's been one of the most fun things for us has been meeting all the new friends that we meet and seeing them pursue all their dreams and goals uh, as a result of just going through life together through our small group, our mastermind group, our breakfast. And it's been uh, one of the most rewarding things Laura and I have done. And so hope you have a great day. I'll talk to you next episode. We should get one or two more in before Christmas. So enjoy and have a great day.